Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this week's Reagan Forum podcast, we go back to our in-person event with Holocaust survivor Selena Carpinias and author William Friedrichs for Bill's book, Saved by Schindler, The Life of Selena Carpinias. This event was part of the programming for our current exhibition, Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away. As part of the exhibition, we have been fortunate to speak with survivors and their family members firsthand to ensure their stories and the stories of their loved ones continue on. Speaking specifically about this exhibition opening at the Reagan Library, Auschwitz survivor David Lenga said, For the Holocaust deniers and doubters, this exhibit is a stark reminder that truth cannot be compromised, but must be faced head-on and defended in every generation. David is just one of the survivors we've spoken to so far. What makes this event unique is that this is the first program or conversation we've had with someone who survived because they were on Schindler's List. Selena Karp was just eight years old when the Germans invaded her homeland of Poland in 1939. After spending time with her family in hiding and then in a ghetto, she and her family were sent to a slave labor and concentration camp. Selena even spent several terrifying weeks at Auschwitz, where she faced down the infamous Dr. Joseph Mengele before ultimately landing on Schindler's List. When the war ended, she and her family eventually made their way to the United States. But she kept her Holocaust experience a secret because the years were too terrible to describe, and she did not believe anyone would understand. That all changed with Steven Spielberg's film Schindler's List, which brought the Holocaust and the story of Oscar Schindler to millions around the world. The movie prompted Selena to confront her painful past and begin speaking publicly about it. As she often explains, Oscar Schindler gave me my life, but Steven Spielberg gave me my voice. Enter William Friedrichs, the former director of the Iowa History Center at Simpson College and award-winning author. In today's program, the two sat down with Reagan Foundation and Institute Chief Marketing Officer, Melissa Giller. Let's listen. Um, so we're actually going to start with you, Bill. Right. Um, I know it's in the book. I read it in the book. But let's share with our audience who hasn't read it yet. How did you come to write this book on this topic, on this person and her family? In summary, why the Holocaust and why Selena's story? Um, I wish I had a long and complicated story for you, but it's really quite simple. I um, was asked to write the book. I, I heard Selena speak in uh, September of 2017, and uh, I was amazed by her story, but I had no idea to get the chance to write the book. And then two years later, the Iowa Jewish Historical Society um, asked if I were interested, and I said, yes, absolutely. So I jumped at the chance. Thank you for asking him. Um, so Selena, talk about your experience. I know we talked about it a little bit earlier but you saw the movie Schindler's List and you finally felt that you could tell the world about your experience. What did that for you? Well, for the first time, uh, I had a po point of reference, you know. If people didn't understand what I went through, I would tell them, well, go watch Schindler's List because that's my life, yeah. And what it did for me, it allowed me to speak more about it, and also it allowed me to put forth amongst the young people and students the idea that you have to forgive and you have to move on and with life and that hatred is corrosive and the only way you can move on is by working through your problems. Yes, please. <laughs> Because you had shared with me earlier tonight that you hadn't even told your children no. about your experiences. My children didn't know anything about it. Uh, they knew that I was born in Europe. And my community where I lived on Long Island for 40 years didn't know anything about me either, except that I was a displaced person and couldn't go back to my original home. And I wanted my children to be free of any guilt. I wanted them to be happy, have a happy childhood, since I didn't have it. 
Whatever happened to me was my problem, not their problem. They didn't really know my, it, the only thing that they found out that I had troubles of some sort during my life was from my husband. I never told him anything. So we'll get back to that, but Bill, first, can you talk about your research process? How do you write a book like this? Because again, if, when, when you read the book, you'll learn that although it really is the story of Selena and her family, it's really the story of the war, pre-war, the Holocaust, post-war, and it's just the Karp family story woven within that. So how do you go about researching something like that? Uh, I'm a historian, so that's what, uh, that's what we do. I, I, um, one of the reasons I was so interested in this topic, Selena has a great story, but I wanted to fill in the blanks. I wanted to, um, I wanted to give people the understanding of how we got to Selena. So you had to have background on what led to the Holocaust. You had to have background on the Jewish community in, in Krakow, for example. Um, you didn't have to know this, but I, thought, I think it's a wonderful story. In 1938, Selena was still living a wonderful life, and she went to see Disney's Snow White. Uh, you know, she really had a great life, and then things completely changed in 1939 when the uh, Nazis invaded. So um, I did what historians do. You do a lot of background reading, you do a lot of uh, primary source research, do a lot of interviews. Unfortunately, when I started the interview process, COVID hit. <laughs> I had an interview scheduled to fly out and meet Selena, and I had to cancel that March of 2020. So Selena and I didn't even meet until July of 2021. And by that time, the book is well underway. So we did all the interviews by phone or by Zoom. Which was going to be one of my questions. How long from the time the Historical Society asked you to write the book until it was whether published or sent to the publisher for printing? Um, it took two full years to write the manuscript and another year for it to be published. Mm. So Selena, you, um, your life from happy childhood watching Snow White to ending up in Auschwitz and ultimately Schindler's factory um, wasn't just a smooth road, right? You were in a ghetto for a while. Would you, what was your life like in the ghetto? Do you recall? Before or no? But, but before you actually ended up at Auschwitz? Uh, we lived in Krakow, went to school, middle-class kind of upbringing. Uh, we did not live in a Jewish quarter, but rather in a mixed neighborhood. My parents were both accountants, were freelancing, so they went to various uh, places to do their accounts, which was really very nice. Actually, what I didn't tell you is that uh, one of my father's accounts was a sewing factory, and that had an incredible impact on our future life because it was that factory that Mr. Modric took over. And so, because my father knew a lot about it, he became, he ran the factory for him. Uh, life was pleasant, life was nice. I finished my first grade, I finished my second grade, and then war broke out, schools were closed, and that was the end. Mm. I never had any other formal education until my 12th grade in Iowa. Mm. Now, you just brought up a name which actually is on my card for my next question. Um, <laughs> you know, we've all heard of Schindler's List, you know, we've seen the movie, we know what he did, but in reading the book, yes, he saved your life, but really, Julius Madras saved your life. Um, you know, he was the one who recognized who you guys were, got you your jobs, got you on the list. Can you share that story with our audience? You mean about Mr. Schindler? Mr. Madridge. Oh, Mr. Madridge. Mr. Madridge took over the sewing factory. Uh, I don't know under what circumstances. And it was changed from doing shirts to doing uh, uniforms for the, for the Wehrmacht or, or the German army. And uh, as I said, my father, because he knew it, ran the factory. My mother then joined him there by doing the accounting and the books. Unfortunately, I could not join them because I was not old enough to leave the ghetto. You had to be at least 13 to get your 
uh, what they call the blue card, which allowed you to leave the ghetto. So I don't know how it happened, but you know there were all kinds of selections amongst old people and young people in the ghetto. And my parents, when they were going out and leaving me behind, were very upset and very worried <clears throat> that they might come back from their work and not find me around, you know. So they, I don't know how it went about, but they must have bribed somebody, but it made me two years older, which consequently I was able to receive the blue card and then I joined my parents working on a sewing machine at the factory. And how did it, how did it become that Mr. Madras was the one who actually got you on Schindler's List? Well, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Madras and Mr. Schindler, because Mr. Schindler took over an uh, enamel factory also, and Mr. Madrich took over this sewing factory, mm. and they were both working for the German army. Mr. Schindler was making pots and pans, you know, mess kits really for the army, and Mr. Madrich was making uniforms. They became very good friends, you know, in, under the circumstances, you know, during the war there in, in Krakow. And uh, Mr. I think Mr. Schindler had an epiphany and decided that he was going to save, at the very end of the war almost, he was going to save his workers. Uh, and so he decided to ask the commandant of the Plage of Concentration Camp whether uh, he could take some workers with him to start a munitions factory in Czechoslovakia. He had a feeling that maybe war was going to end, and if he took these people to Czechoslovakia, eventually they will survive. He asked Mr. Madrich, which is what he did. He started a munitions factory in Moravia. He asked Mr. Madrich if he would also want to join him in Czechoslovakia, but Mr. Madrich, now we're talking about 1944, around um, September or so, when the Russian army was very close to liberating the rest of Poland. Uh, Mr. Madrich said, no, it's enough. He had enough, so he wasn't <clears throat> going to do it, and he was going to go back to Vienna, where he came from. Uh, and um, then Mr. Uh, Schindler said to Mr. Madrich, well, then give me some names to put on my list. And that was my chance, or fate, or whatever you want to call it. But that's what I, and both my parents and I ended up on Schindler's list. And again, I know I asked you this earlier uh, this evening, but um when you, when you found out you were on the list, did that mean anything to you at the time? Did you know that meant you were saved? Well, it, no, it, we didn't know that we were saved, but we knew one thing. We were able to leave the concentration camp in Plasio, which was a very, very horrible place, mm -hmm. you know, very, uh, uh, the commandant there after the war was uh, executed mm -hmm. for all the things that he had done to people. So you're told you're on Schindler's List. You're told you're going to go to a factory. You get on a boxcar. You end up at Auschwitz. Can you talk about that experience? Well, first of all, the 800 men left about two weeks prior to the women. They were put in boxcars and sent off, and we had no idea whether they made it or not because there was no communication. Two weeks later, the 300 women were put in boxcars and we traveled for about a day and a half. It was nighttime. And so we thought we probably, I mean, it's not that far from Krakow to Moravia, really. So uh, we thought we had arrived at the right place. 
but when the doors opened up and we saw dogs barking and plumes of fire in the sky and uh, shouting and everything, we realized that we were in an awful smell. We realized we were in Auschwitz, not knowing why. And so right away they told us, you know, to get out of the boxcars, line up, go to a barrack, strip, take off your clothes, go to the next barrack, have your hair cut, go to the next barrack, which turned out to be a sauna, which is kind of a bathhouse. And we've already heard that sometimes instead of water, uh, gas would come, because that was one way of gassing people and, and sending them to the crematorium. So it was a moment of great fear while we, doors were locked and uh, all of a sudden the water came and we felt we had another day of reprieve. Then after that we were given out uh, new clothes, stripe, the striped pajamas and wooden clogs and we were placed in barracks, 100 people to each barrack, so we had three barracks. And lo and behold, we ended up being in Auschwitz for almost five weeks without knowing why we were there, you know. But eventually, well, you want my life in Auschwitz? <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, the life extended to the point where we were cleaning snow, we washed the latrines, we spent most of the time, three times a day, on a place called the Appellplatz, which was a counting place, standing in rows of five, which usually took like two hours, and it was cold, very cold at that point, and we had only the striped pajamas and the uh, clogs, uh, so we devised, I told you, we devised a point, a system that the person who was in the front of the row and the person who was at the end of the row would switch places with somebody who was in the middle so they could warm up and the other people would take their place. <clears throat> so we did this for about almost five weeks and still we weren't tattooed. We were the only 300 women who went through Auschwitz without being tattooed. We all knew our number, but we weren't, it wasn't pr printed on us. We were at one point taken to, uh, to be tattooed, but, uh, oh, I didn't tell you about Mr. Mengele. Yes, that was my next question. <laughs> uh, you want me to please, talk? Please, please do. Okay. So, uh, that was our life, you know, cleaning, standing on our pelplats, being counted, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, my and every so often, a group of women would volunteer to go to the kitchen to peel potatoes. One day, my mother volunteered with 30 other women to go uh, to the kitchen to peel potatoes because she thought she could probably bring back some of the peels to feed us because we were hungry. And so she volunteered. <clears throat> it just so happened that that particular day, our barrack was taken for selection. Now, selection was a place where in the barrack, uh, you stripped naked, you stood in line, and the doctor, who happened to be Dr. Mengele, would look you over and decide he had a pencil in his hand, and that pencil would veer either to the right or to the left, and he would decide whether you were strong enough yet to continue working, and if you weren't, uh, the pencil would go to the left. At one point, the pencil, when I was going through, I was only 13 at the time, really, very skinny, undeveloped, but my body fortunately was clean, 
but that was very important to have a clean body, not to have any kind of uh, abscess or anything on your body because that would really uh, take you out right away. But I didn't make it that time. Any, I was on the left side, but at one point he decided to take the group again and we all went through the line again and I don't know whether it was what prompted me, whether it was a survival instinct or what, <clears throat> but when I reached him, I said three words to him in German. I said, which really is translated, let me go. The go is implied, you know, in the word. And this time, the pencil went to the right. Mm. I grabbed my clothes, <clears throat> ran out into the snow outside to get dressed. And there I saw my mother running like crazy because she had just discovered that the barrack went for selection. So at least I saved myself in some way or another, or Dr. Mengele saved me. How did you know when he waved his pencil to the left that that meant the gas chamber? Oh, because the people that were on the left were older, <clears throat> you know, or not younger, because I was like the youngest, you know. No, they were older, or maybe they had physical ailments of some sort. That's how we knew. Do either of you know how many of the women on Schindler's List who went to Auschwitz didn't make it out? Do you know? Well, the 300 women that were on, on the list all made it out because I have no idea why we were detained, but I have a feeling it was all about money mm -hmm. because when the bribe came from Mr. Schindler, all of a sudden we were <clears throat> taken to boxcars, filled in, and moved on. So somebody was waiting for a bribe, but it took like five weeks for it. So Bill, let's talk about Schindler's factory. Okay. Um, it operated for, I'm not quite sure how long, but it never made any working product, right? It never, it, to it talk made, about that. Okay, the factory, the armaments factory in yes. Czechoslovakia, um, it operated about six or seven months, I think, uh, toward the end of the war. Um, it did make a few uh, shells that worked. Mm -hmm. He had to do that, mm -hmm. um, but many, many didn't. The machines were miscalibrated, as Selena will tell you. But, but it, it, it's not quite true. There were a number of shells that went out that worked, or, or the factory would have been shut down. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, the factory was uh, the place that saved Selena. Thank heaven for that. So Selena, um, we talked about how young you were when the war started, and you said second grade was your last year of schooling. The war ends. You should be in eighth grade, but you probably have the you know, teachings and learnings of a second grader. Um, so you had to be tutored to get up to speed. Can you talk about that? Well, I, uh, I could read, but I haven't held a pencil or a pen in my hand in all those years, of course. Uh, that was one of the big priorities as we were making our way back to Poland. What was going to happen to my education? Uh, as I told you before, uh, Mr. Schindler made sure the factory that he took over happened to have been a cloth factory, and there were some remnants of cloth and sewing implements, and he made sure that every family got some of the cloth and some of the implements in order to use them as a barter, because we had no money at all. So my family got two bolts of cloth and five pairs of scissors, and one of those pairs of scissors is at the Iowa Jewish Historical <clears throat> Society. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we ended up in, in Krakow, and because we had the stuff to barter with, uh, we hired a tutor. Unfortunately, it was uh, May, so I had a whole summer to try and get caught up and so I studied very hard. If you are denied something, you really, really crave it. Mm -hmm. 
And I've always tried to tell that to the young students that I meet, because you know they complain about having a test or having this or having that. And I was trying to tell them, if you are prohibited from having this, you will really want to do it. So I worked very hard. <laughs> and because my head was empty, everything stayed in. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I took a test in September. And one other girl, one other Jewish girl and myself uh, got into the girls' gymnasium. Uh, you were right, into about eighth grade or so. Yeah. And I was absolutely thrilled. I mean, that September was wonderful to be able to have friends, to be able to go to school, to be able to have a paper and pencil and all of that. It was great. Unfortunately, at the end of September are the Jewish holidays of Rosh Hashanah, and, which is New Year. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were terrible pogroms or insurrections again at the, end, at the eastern part of Poland. And my parents at that point, we've already heard from my uncle in United States and my uncle in Palestine that they were starting to uh, affidavits to take us out of Poland. And so my parents decided at that point that uh, they will not stay in Poland. They were going to leave. And so we smuggled over the border to Czechoslovakia and then walked again the whole distance into the American zone and lived for two years in Germany. And I think what you're leading to is uh, my wonderful experience with uh, a little nun. Uh, in that little town, of course, I couldn't go to school again because uh, I didn't know German, and I didn't know history. And so I was, again, kind of upset, to say the least, angry, hateful, for the way life was dealing me uh, things. But I was enrolled in, a, in this cloister, which was a semi-cloister. The nuns didn't go out, but the children came in for, it, for their education. There was a retired nun. I thought she was 90, but Bill tells me mm -hmm. she was 80, but it doesn't matter. She, she was old. <laughs> she was old. Okay. But the point is, she entered the convent when she was 16 years old because of a broken love affair mm -hmm. and never left. And she was the first person to really treat me as a human being, and she, I spent two years with her, and it was because of the way she taught me and spoke to me, and her total acceptance of me as a person, uh, she let me work through teaching me that uh, hatred is corrosive, and that in order to move on in life, you really, really have to confront your problems and work through them. So, More from our Reagan Forum with Selena Carbinias and William Friedrichs after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles. Individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to our Reagan Forum with Selena Carpinias and William Friedrichs. So, Bill, in reading your book, I got the sense, and please correct me, I could be wrong, um, that although Oscar Schindler did an amazing thing and saved 1,100 lives, he might not have actually been a nice guy. Um, can you elaborate? Uh, I should let Selena do that, <laughs> but um, 
No, I, I think in dealing with his workers, he was a good guy. I, I think he did have the workers' interest at heart toward the end of the war. It took him a long time to get to that point. But he was a conniving businessman who went into uh, Krakow to make money. Mm -hmm. That was what he was, and that's what he was doing uh, very successfully um, until, uh, until gradually he came to the point that uh, Nazism was a real terrible thing. Mm -hmm. Because he was a Nazi. He was a Nazi spy. Mm -hmm. um, but he did gradually move to a position that he needed to save the workers. So speaking of Schindler, Selina, in the book you're quoted as saying, and I'm going to read this, I cannot wait for the Schindler phenomenon to be over because of the memories. Why not have a pleasant life? These are not pleasant thoughts. Have you changed your mind? <laughs> well, I'm such a beneficiary of what Schindler did, you know, that uh, maybe I've grown up a little bit more. But uh, I'm very grateful to Oscar Schindler for giving me a life, and particularly grateful to Steven Spielberg for giving me the voice by making Schindler's List, which then became a point of reference for me when I speak about my experiences. Um, right before this, we were in the exhibit for just a few minutes, and you told me that you had, I guess, sort of recently returned to Auschwitz. Can you share that story? Well, the Shoah Foundation sent, uh, in, in 2016, sent 100, uh, Shoah Foundation and the Jewish World Congress together, sent 100 former prisoners of Auschwitz to, uh, Aus to Auschwitz to partake in the, uh, well, I wouldn't call it a celebration, but really, uh, the commemoration? The commemoration, really, commemoration of uh, the liberation of Auschwitz, 70th liberation of Auschwitz by the Russian army. And uh, it was a very interesting experience for me because I was 84 years old at the time. And as I was sitting there looking at the gate and the tracks, you know, the railroad tracks, that brought you in, uh, I had almost like an out-of-body experience. It was really amazing. It wasn't me, the 84-year-old woman. All of a sudden, it was a 13-year-old girl experiencing Auschwitz. So I know the audience probably has a lot of questions. So my last question is actually for both of you. Um, what do you hope this book will accomplish? Uh, why is it important to continually learn about the Holocaust? Um, for me, I, uh, it's not just my book. It, there are many books on the Holocaust and on uh, personal experiences from the Holocaust. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I think my book personalizes the experience, so it's not just six million. It's an individual story about the horrific things that happen. Um, but given the rising tide of anti-Semitism, I think now is a critical time to tell these stories. Also because um, Holocaust survivors are not going to be around that much longer. And Schindler's List survivors are not going to be around that much longer. So we need to pay attention to this um, because it could happen again. Mm -hmm. uh, and we really don't want it to, so. And Selena, why is it important to tell your story? Uh, exactly what Bill just said. <clears throat> Things are happening around us, you know, that makes you think it might happen again. Mm -hmm. And maybe focusing on experiences like that and telling the historical part of it, which Bill did so great, you know, uh, how it all came up. It isn't just a Holocaust survivor, really. It is what was happening internationally and in Poland and with the Nazis, right. which Bill did such a great job of bringing it in that makes you think, you know, if we don't watch out, it may happen again. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to turn to the audience for questions. We do have a handful of staff members with microphones. We ask that you raise your hand and wait for the microphone to be brought to you so that our viewers at home can hear the questions. So if you have a question, um, there's one way up here. Hi. 
How old was your family before you finally told them your experiences and what brought that about? <clears throat> I'm sorry, what, oh, how old was your family when you finally told them about your Holocaust experience? When I told your, your children, children, when you told right. your children. I never told my children. <clears throat> my husband told my children, and my son keeps telling me that when he was reading Bill's book and discovered the scissors, that was the first time that he realized that a pair of scissors that were by my sewing machine were part of the whole, you know, of the camp. Uh, I never talked to my children about it. They know about it now, and if they are interested about asking me a question, <clears throat> I will tell them, but it's not for me to, uh, they should be happy, and I have a happy time. If I may, um, Selena's son found out about the Holocaust when he was about 12 years old, and it was, um, he, had done some, he had done something to Selena or, or somebody in the family that really annoyed Selena's husband. <laughs> so Selena's husband pulled Rob aside and said, you can't talk to your mom that way. Don't you know she experienced concentration camps? And he said, what? But, but he sort of forgot about it and put it in the back of his mind until he read the book Schindler's List. And he recognized the scissors story and asked his mom, he called his mom after the book came out and he read the book and he said, mom, those, those funny looking scissors in your sewing room, are, are they from, from Schindler? And she said, yes. Selena's daughter found out a little bit about uh, the experience when she was a little bit older than that, in her young teens, I think. And um, Sue told me that she thought it was Selena's mother who mentioned the Holocaust to, uh, to Sue. So. There's a question back there. Hi. Um, what are some of the issues that you see today that remind you that this could happen again? Um, so I, either of you could answer that. Uh, Selena, the question was, what, what do you see in the world that makes you think this could happen again? What I see is that there seems to be an awful lot of hatred around, mm -hmm. you know. People see, there seem to be factions. People don't talk <clears throat> to each other to settle problems, you know. And as I, I was taught, you have to work through your problem to get on, and doesn't seem to be that way. People bandy around epithets, calling each other names, you know, and uh, I'm just worried, you know, that uh, we're not on the right step. Yeah. We're gonna go right to the front row here. Oh, Selena, hi, uh, my name is David. My, uh, I'm sorry. My name is David. My uh, father was a survivor of uh, Auschwitz. And I have a question for you. You had mentioned um, that hatred is corrosive. Was it, how did you get rid of that hatred? Was it a, 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 over time or was there a, a single event or a couple of significant events that allowed you to move past the hatred and like people again? I told you, I had this incredible experience with this nun who was just <clears throat> the gentlest person and she was so accepting of people and of me, uh, you know, that she really helped me realize that you don't accomplish anything with hatred. You have to forgive, you have to work through your problems and, uh, You, you, you don't, you can forgive, but you must not forget. Before we go to the next question, I just want to point out that you know, she didn't go to school from second grade to eighth grade, and yet she became a teacher um, helping students with disabilities. So I think that's remarkable as well. No, I worked with the youngsters who really had uh, difficulty learning and I could certainly identify with them, so we bonded very well. We're gonna go all the way to the back of the room. Uh, hi, my name is Peter. 
Um, I also teach children with uh, special needs. Mm -hmm. My question to you is about your husband. You mentioned that he knew about it. Was he also a survivor? And uh, what was his story to do with? Was, was your husband a survivor? No, no, not at all. No. <laughs> well, if I'm... He was a survivor in the marriage, but I... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go uh, over here, yeah? I'll lay back there. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is Tom Bellin. I'm uh, by day a professor at UCLA, but I grew up in the neighborhood with the Winnick family, mm -hmm. so Robbie Winnick is my Aunt Robbie. And I was very touched and warmed when you alluded so uh, warmly to the Iowa Jewish Historical Society, which my family has supported as well. And I was just wondering what the Iowa Jewish Historical Society means to you. What does the Iowa Jewish Historical Society mean to you? To me, a, a great deal, because their function is to collect artifacts and stories to show the contribution of the Jewish community to the state of Iowa. And I have great feelings for the state of Iowa. Iowa educated me. Mm -hmm. Iowa gave me a college degree. I, my parents lived in Iowa for 50 years and I had a good life after their experiences in the concentration camps. So, yes, I, kudos to Iowa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think we're going right here. Hi. Um, I am just amazed at your English, and I was wondering if you could tell us more about your education. You obviously, if you were a teacher, you probably had further higher education, and uh, I'd like to know uh, how you went through high school and college or whatever. Um, basically, how did you become educated? How did you learn English? How did you become a teacher? Well, <clears throat> I learned English from my little nun, Master Leontine. Then I continued when I came to Iowa. I ended up in North High School, great school, <laughs> in my 12th grade. I had brought all my notebooks and all my books that I did privately with tutors and when I submitted them to the North High School, to, yes, they looked at them and they decided that I had covered enough material to be able to enter 12th grade. So I never had a formal education from second grade to 12th grade. But then I got, I was very fortunate because the <clears throat> girls advisor in that particular high school was a graduate of Grinnell College, mm. and she made it her point to take me to Grinnell to, in, inter, to get Grinnell interested in, my, in me and to give me a full academic scholarship and a work program. And so, the, at, you know, I was there for four years, and in four years I learned quite a bit of English. <laughs> okay, to go right here. Hi, my name is Judy, and I'm a little curious about how you came, happened to have come to America. Did you have relatives here? A little bit, little bit about that story, and when you got here, how difficult was it for you to adjust to American style? More about how you got to Iowa and how you adjusted to the lifestyle. Well, we uh, lived in Germany for two years. We had, as soon as we left the concentration camp, in Moravia, we worked our way to Poland. We notified the International Red Cross to let them know. My, my father had two brothers, one in Palestine, one in the United States, to let them know that we had survived. We also notified the uh, Jewish survivors organization to look for anybody who might have survived from our family. Uh, nobody survived from our family, so when my parents decided to leave Poland, 
we, as I said, we smuggled over into the American zone. We ended up in a DP camp, but my mother decided at that point we were just there for a week and a half. She decided she had enough camps. So we ended up in this small German town, you know, and that's where I learned English and German. I did learn the English, kind of a British English, you know, when I got to Iowa and my uncle brought us over. He came to New York and picked us up and drove us from New York to Iowa. And lo and behold, it took us three days to travel. And I, in my foolish not lack of knowledge, thought the United States was vast <laughs> without realizing that there was three times as much beyond Iowa. <laughs> so that's how I learned English. We're going to go all the way in the back over here. Uh, could you describe how your family was moved into the ghetto in Krakow prior? I can't hear. Can you say that one more time? I had trouble hearing. Could too. she describe how her family was moved into the ghetto at the beginning of the war? Sure. Um, how did your family end up in the ghetto before the war? How did they end up in the ghetto? They were Jewish. How, right. How did you get to the ghetto? I think she wants to talk about that. <laughs> I think she wants to talk about the move. Oh, the move? Right. The move was kind of interesting because uh, each neighborhood got notices to move, you know, and eventually our neighborhood got, the Jews in our neighborhood got notice to go ahead and move. Uh, as it happened, my mother was able to sell all our furniture and everything to our neighbors, so the only way we could move would be just with the bedding on a cart right. to uh, the ghetto. And then in the ghetto, of course, as it got smaller and smaller, you moved more and more. That's how you moved. So we have time for only two more questions. The first of the two is gonna be over here. Hi, my name is Elle, and I'm just wondering, when you hear about people who don't care to learn about the Holocaust or even care, how does that make you feel? How do you feel when you find people who don't care to learn about the Holocaust? <laughs> Great question. You can't force people to accept knowledge, mm -hmm. you know? All you can do is talk about it, show artifacts, like this Auschwitz exhibit here, I mean, I think people who come here and see it begin to realize, yes, it did happen. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here, you know? That's the only thing is lots and lots of teaching, and especially the young people. I find the young people so open and so ready to accept the new ideas, the diversity and everything. I, I'm very, very proud of our young people. And our last question's in the back of the room here. Hi, Selena, my name is Veronica, and I was curious what happened to the other three pair of scissors. If you have one, and the other one is in the Jewish... Um, historical Society. Thank you, Historical Society. Um, what happened to all the pairs of scissors you brought uh, back? We, uh, we had five pairs. The four pairs we used as barter, I don't remember exactly when or how, but I know that we had to get a room in an apartment when we moved to Krakow. But I always kept that one pair. And my mother, uh, which is another item at the Iowa Jewish Historical Society, uh, kept one of the cups from Schindler's factory. It's a red enamel cup and um, beaten up, it was the cup that we used in camp to drink our coffee, if you can call it <laughs> coffee, uh, you know. And my mother always, people have asked her, why did you keep this, why did you keep this? And my mother used to always have it in the kitchen, looking at it, she says, because it always tells me that there's a better tomorrow. Mm. Well, that's a good way to end, right? <laughs>
So I want to obviously thank all of you for driving out here tonight, but most specifically want to thank Bill and Selena for coming and telling your story, Selena, and sharing your book with us. Um, speaking of the book, if you haven't already purchased it, it is still available um, out in our lobby and up in our store. We're going to take Selena and Bill up to the museum store now, and they will sign copies of the book for you. So thank you for coming out, and let's give them one more round of applause. Copies of Save by Schindler can be purchased through the Reagan Library Museum Store. Every purchase you make from our catalog, website, or museum store is a critical component to our success. In short, your purchase supports our efforts to extend the legacy of President Ronald Reagan. Purchases can be made at reaganlibrary.com store. To find a listing of all upcoming events, including events related to our Auschwitz exhibition, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.